This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Matt and Patrick, how are we today, Patrick? I'm very nervous. Uh, First pitch of the Twins game about to get underway. Thank God you're paying attention to the show. (laughs) All Uh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The last two times we had day games when you weren't here last week, it was basically me and Brett going, yeah, something. (laughs) Uh, Something. Wow. I mean, they weren't exactly the most cohesive shows I've ever had. Uh, I did bring you the T-shirt today. I did. Yeah, I there you go. appreciate it. All right, we're going to have to have a – we'll have to show the T-shirt on the camera a little bit later on. I got you guys. I found you Viking shirts, which all – for you, Brett, and, and Broadcorp as well, our Vikings guys. So, I mean, I got yours and Broadcorp. For some reason, I did not get Brett's yet. So, there you go. You get to enjoy that. Um. The first pitch, uh, it is, uh, we got uh, Gray on the mound today? Yep, against Christian Javier for the Astros. A guy with a 4.50 ERA of the Twins should light up, but will probably have two hits against Yeah, two hits, minutes. and then they'll light up Gray in the first inning for six or something like that. Uh, God forbid. Um, they got uh, Royce at third. Is that the right call? I think it's the right call because I think, I don't know if there was a little bit, I know he had the hamstring issue. I don't know if it was a little bit of gamesmanship that, you know, didn't want teams to think about how athletic he could really be. Because you saw there was a play where he was caught off of third base and yep. kind of went, well, actually the hammy looks like it might be in pretty good shape. Yeah, and I think that Jorge, and, and nothing against Jorge Polanco at third, but he's had a few mistakes. You know, the reason why Carlos Correa had to make that amazing play at home plate was because uh, our third base play is not exactly as strong as it needs to be. And you can always, I mean, if you always have questions about it, you can always pull the guy out. You know, that's that's for sure. Um, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. A lot to get to there. I got to tell you the truth. Uh, J.B. Der, uh, Bogosian is going to be, uh, Bogosian is going to be in studio. My, this queer book saved my life. I can't tell you. It was funny. I saw him a few weeks ago, and I said, "Man, I got to have you on my show." And he was like, "I, you know, the, you're, you know what you're doing." And I, you know, it really is. It's, it's like when I I talk with Robert Native Roots Radio. It's it's radio you just don't hear anywhere else. And the you know when he, whether you're looking at Native Roots Radio, or you're looking at uh, this queer book saved my life. These are these are shows that are doing good. I mean, these are it's not just this yammering chimp fest that I call I've got here. You know this. You know, <laughs> did they just did let some guy roam into the studio? Yeah, that's it. But these guys are actually doing stuff which is important, and I can't tell you how pleased I am that I get to talk to, uh, you know, JP coming up here uh, in, in just a little bit, and um, 
Um, yeah, it's. I, I think that that's going to be a hoot. 952-946-6205. Patrick, you do get the ability to break in if all of a sudden, you know, the, you, you've got a major update on the game. Right. I just uh, <laughs> one thing though I can't do is we can't put the game up here. We were the last few games of the Toronto series. We had them up on the screen and they were reflecting here, and it was me just like, wow, yeah, Democrats, <laughs> Republicans, yeah, oh, boy. yeah, it was. So we we can't put it up there on the screen because I'll just get too distracted. So, and, and plus the fact that I've got a I've got a cornucopia for you here today. I have a cornucopia. Uh, by the way, just uh, one thing I should mention: Ryan's going to pitch tomorrow, right? Ryan's on the slate for four. Yep, that's right. Yeah, that's I'm actually okay with that. He's got he can't give up the home runs, but you've got such you know. Let's face it: if it's a clinching game, you have Ober, you have Kenta Maeda. I got faith they can put together seven innings between the three of those guys. And the other good news is, um, sounds like the Astros are not going to. Put Justin Verlander back out there tomorrow. No, they're planning on their hope is to get back to Houston for, you know, if they don't sweep here, if they, they get back to Houston and Verlander versus Lopez on game five, which would be pretty amazing. But we'll have to see. But today, uh, gray today, uh, Ryan tomorrow for sure. Go Twins. Go Twins. And I got the, I got, yeah, my, I got that. I can't put it on my head. So there you go. All right. 952 946 So today I posted, if you go to the social media pages, I posted a, a workout picture of myself. I got to tell you, I look hot. I, I, I am. Wow. Look at that. That is a disturbing man. Think lurch only not as attractive. Uh, there it is. It's, it's me in the gym. I, I posted this today for this reason. And I also posted with this, and I, I can't tell you how happy I am with this. This actually happened on Monday. I ran two miles on an elliptical, and I got I did it in fourteen forty two. And I and I'm that's kind of basically where I was before a drunk driver hit me and broke my back. That was ten months ago. Ten months ago, it was a Saturday on December tenth. I was being taken in to have screws and rods put into my back to hold my T4, T5 back together. Or T, excuse me, T5, T6, T4, T7 is where they have got the, the, the screws and the hold everything back together. It came together nicely. It's been 10 months and I still have numb spots in my back. I still can't bend over to pick up things to save myself. Um, I've got to be careful with heavy duty lifting. There's a lot of little things that I've got to be careful with that are a problem that are undeniably a problem and yeah i'm i am concerned i am concerned about some of these things now that all being said i am recovering and i'm you know i've i've got a lot to be grateful for and i am grateful for a lot of things it's given me a lot of different perspective on things and i i really do feel as if there is 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 you know I, you know there's a blessing that I have that I've the the amount of damage I've had is is something I can come back from. That being said, uh, if if you're a fan of this show, you know that I am no longer tolerant of a situation of of people drinking and driving. I'm just not very tolerant of that at all, and. It it is it's it's um, it is incredibly frustrating 
to, to have situations where I see people who should know better. You, we have in this day and age, we have Uber, we have Lyft, you have cabs, you have mass transit, you have a friend who can drive you, who's sober, you have, you can just stay at home. Or you can just not drink. Got plenty of options on the table. Instead, you decide to jeopardize people and endanger people and get the road and, and drink and drive. And I don't care which party you're from. We had the, the, the guy from the North Country Earlier this year, we had a guy from St. Cloud, a DFL from St. Cloud. I'll criticize and rip on anyone. We've got that guy. Now, the lawyer, you can't necessarily say. They they have half an hour, hour 35 miles away from the accident, he was, he was drunk. But I don't know if they have the evidence to say that he was definitively drinking and driving when he hit the construction worker. Needless to say, though, I don't have any tolerance for it. I have zero tolerance. You, I understand. You always go like, I wasn't trying to hurt anyone. Yeah, that was what the guy was saying to me. That blasted into the back of my car. And once again, I would not be alive today if not for the structural integrity of a Toyota Sienna. I would not be alive today if not for that. I, I can't. That's that's a fact. That is a fact. And this guy could have killed me. And anytime you go on out and you're drinking and driving, you could do the same thing. Uh, freshman State Representative Brian Curran was charged Tuesday with two misdemeanor counts of drunken driving after a test found the Democrats' blood alcohol level to be 0.16, double the legal limit. Before arresting Curran on a suspicion of driving under the influence, Chisago County received two calls complaining about her speed, weaving and veering into a ditch, according to the dispatch. Um... Short report. Shortly after 2 a.m. on Monday, the first report to dispatch complained of a vehicle going at an excessive speed in the uh, over lane lines. The sheriff's office had said the second caller reported the vehicle weaving into a ditch. According to the charges filed on Tuesday, the Chicago uh, Chisago County Sheriff um, deputy found Curran driving slowly on the shoulder with hazard lights flashing and a flat front tire on the driver's side. There also appeared to be fresh damage to the driver's side front corner. The Chargers state. The Chargers state. The deputy asked her what was going on, and she responded that she wasn't sure and was trying to get home. According to the Chargers, Curran told the deputy she thought she was in St. Paul, and the deputy noted that she had bloodshot, watery eyes, and slurred speech, per the charges. Curran reported that she had had three drinks. The state representative showed signs of impairment during one field sobriety test, but declined to take an additional test or a preliminary breathalyzer, according to the charges. Test taken just before 3.30 a.m. on Monday at the Chisago County Jail found Curran's blood alcohol to be 0.16. She remained in jail Tuesday, could not be reached for comment. News released from the Chisago County Attorney said Curran's next hearing is set for December 12th. Curran represents District 36B, the northeastern at Twin Cities Metro. That includes White Bear Lake, Gem Lake, and Birchwood Village. The state website lists, lists Curran's non-legislative career as social services. Her campaign website, she is a former police officer who was a once a deputy of the Chisago County Sheriff's Office. The same agency that arrested her. Curran ended up her career in public safety voluntarily in May of 2018 after enduring post-traumatic stress disorder uh, as a licensed police officer, her campaign website says. It sounds like you were so schnockered you had no idea where you even were, which is terrifying, which is just terrifying. <sighs> You know, I gave up drinking years ago, and I there was a, there was a medical issue with that, but it was as well. 
I, I, I was noticing at the time there was a lot of people in media who were getting busted for drinking and driving. And, you know, you, you know, they, they, that, and, and for a while there, and I don't know if it's still the case, I haven't really heard too many cases of it. It was an instantaneous, you're fired, you're gone. Drinking and driving, you're gone. I mean, it was, they'd, they'd come on out and they say, we really hope he's, he does better or, or the, she does better. We hope that they, they, they can get the treatment they need. Unfortunately, they're no longer employed by this, you know, this network, this outlet, whatever the case may be. And that kind of resonated with me. I was like, is, is this really doing me any favors? And it's funny because if you give up alcohol, I mean, I, I don't have any problem. You want to drink, you want to drink, fine. That's on you. I could care less. Just don't get behind the freaking wheel of a car and start driving if you've been drinking. That's just plain stupid. It terrifies me. It terrifies me watch, leaving that Vikings game that I was at earlier this year and seeing the condition of some of the people walking out and just saying, please tell me someone else is driving. Please tell me that person's not driving the car. Please tell me they're taking the light rail or they're taking, you know, they're taking an Uber or a Lyft. Tell me something that's going on here. I don't have any problem with you having a drink. I have a problem with you basically being so drunk that you, you can't function properly. That's exactly what was going on here. And I get it. Alcohol makes your, your, you know, you know, kind of skews your judgment in the wrong direction. And so you say to yourself, well, I can make this, I can drive this. You know, and the reality is, is that you have to make the idea, the argument that the, you, you have to, you have to keep things in perspective. You have to keep things in perspective that if you've been drinking, that you cannot drive your car. End of story, end of discussion. Representative, I hope all my best. I hope that you get the help you need and the, the situation, you know, you're taking care of what you need to take care of. Um, but the reality is, is it is in deeply disappointing that this is where you are at. And, you know, yeah, you can, I, I mean, I definitely can make an argument, whatever friends she was with, they didn't do you any favors. They didn't do you any favors, but at the, you know, by letting you get going, but at the same time, you have to bear, bear responsibility for your own actions. And, uh, yeah. I have very little on this. You know, Patrick, sometimes I guess I'm a little prophetic when it comes to sports. Uh, what's the score right now in the top of the first inning? Uh, one nothing, Houston. No, it's not. It's 4 nothing. They got a three-run home run. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, they got a three-run home run. I said that this could be, hopefully, this is not going to be the game where basically they, they get into a hole early. But, you know, this is what the Astros are trying to do. They're trying to take care of business. And if you went in there thinking to yourself that they weren't going to be trying in the first inning, well, you just learned your lesson. So stop the bleeding right now. Get back out there, and you've got a lineup that can put runs on the board. You better start doing so. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Will Dean Phillips have a challenger? We'll talk about that when I do return. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. Four zero. <laughs> it's four zero now. Uh, well, you know, it's they they the twins have got to win two games. You got three games to do it. So get to work. Get to work. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Um, we have talked a little bit about Dean Phillips and how he is indeed kind of 
rubbed some people the wrong way in regards to the, the coming his coming his comments about Joe Biden wanting him to retire, uh, not wanting him to be at the top of the ticket. He's even kind of kind of hinted at or floated the concept of the idea that he might even run for a president himself, which okay, fine. But uh, something which I am not in the least bit surprised about is apparently some, there are some rumblings that he might get a, a, a primary challenge in the Minnesota 3rd District. The Democratic National Committee official is putting together a campaign infrastructure in anticipation of a potential primary bid against Dean Phillips. Credible intra-party challenges to congressional incumbents are rare, but Phillips has rankled many of the Democratic establishment with his musings about primary challenges against Joe Biden. Well, no, and I want to make sure I point this out. Last year, before the election, way before the election, and and like I said, Dean Phillips wasn't in jeopardy of losing his seat. For, For him, before even the midterm elections, to be insisting that Joe Biden needed to step aside and a new candidate needed to run was not only was that irresponsible and disrespectful to Joe Biden, who had won the presidency, but as well, it really screwed over pretty much every other Democrat running because instantaneously there were questions from pretty much every, for every Democrat running saying, do you agree with Dean Phillips? Do you, do you, do you? And that was an unforced error. And you put a lot of other Democrats in to a difficult situation where they had to defend or knock down a ludicrous argument that was taking place. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, that was, that was a mistake, but it's, it's this whole thing where you, you kind of keep rattling around and you know, this is, I mean, I criticized him the other day about his call for a full fledged you know, or implication implication there should be a full-fledged ground war against Iran if they are found to be involved in this. Um, it, you know, the, the incident with Israel and Hamas. And I was like, you understand what you're asking for there? Because I mean, that's, not, that's not a few missiles and we're done. That's years of protracted war, ground war, trillions of dollars, probably a million troops, <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, it's a, con- it's a country one quarter the size of the United States. You're not going to just be able to, and it's huge. You're not going to be able to just, you know, throw a few rockets in there and they're going to say, uncle, that's just not how it's going to happen. But that's different. This, I don't, I mean, there are a lot of people, and I got to tell you the truth is at the, the times I've talked about Dean Phillips, there is a shocking amount of Democrats who are like, why? And, and I'm not talking the loony liberals. I'm talking moderates who are like, why is he doing this? A lot of, I know a lot of moderates in his district who are like, why are you doing this? Um, Ron Harris, a 33-year-old DNC executive committee member and Midwestern caucus chair has been begun staffing up as a sign of a seriousness about to run. And, and I'll tell you what, this is, here's, here's where it gets really serious because he's bringing on some people on board that are, that are, yeah, this is this is this is for keeps. Harris has hired George Hornado, a former top aide of Pete Buttigieg's 2020 camp presidential campaign, and the campaign is in the process of interviewing consultants, according to some familiar, uh, familiar with the matter. Harris has suggested his bid would be influenced by whether Phillips ran for president, but has not ruled out a primary challenge if the three-term congressman opts out uh, opts for re-election instead. Phillips, who recently relinquished his positions. 
in the Democratic leadership over his opposition to not renominating Biden has caught the ire of many Democrats in Congress and beyond. In a telling sign, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison said of Harris at the DNC's fall meeting in St. Louis on Thursday, I'm very much with him every step of the way, whatever he decides to do, according to video by Axios. Phillips' resignation as a co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee came after a colleague, Representative Sidney uh, Kamliger, Dove of California, criticized his comments about Biden in a closed-door caucus meeting. So now we're basically, now we're hearing there indeed was a closed-door meeting and that Dean Phillips was taking some grief about this. And and once again, and Dean, you can say anything you like. You brought this on yourself. You know, if if you are relatively soon after the election sc- screaming about how that guy better not run again, even though he's been pretty successful, you know there's going to be some pushback on that. Phillips, who has never faced a serious primary challenge, won all three of his general elections in the one-time swing district by over 10 percentage points. Like I said, he didn't need to say a dang thing last year about Joe Biden. He, he was going to win that seat. That was not even a question. But, yeah. Multiple political operatives in Minnesota told Axios they don't see a clear path for the same party challenger to win at this time. Um, so, I basically, I don't... I, I, I've... I don't know about that. I, I think that they're that that I, I'm gonna just tell you right now, I know a lot of people who are kind of pissed off at Dean Phillips. And reminder, primaries are kind of run by the more liberal side in the in the Republican side, it's the more conservative side, and the Democratic side, it's the more liberal side. And I mean, I'll remember, I'll never forget, I had Dean Phillips on here his first year he ran, and he came in here and he was Johnny Progressive. You know, he was talking about all his progressive policies and progressive stances and things like that. You know, I, I don't know how much he resonates necessarily with the progressive voice of the Democratic side now. But I can tell you right now, just like I said, there's a lot of Democrats who seem to be upset with him in his own district. So Americans are demanding more competency in elections, not less. Phillips said in a statement at Axios, resident of what he said in his advocacy of primary, uh, Biden primary challenger. I welcome other candidates in the next race in the Minnesota Three because everyone's invited, he also added. Well, you're going to need a good answer. You're going to need a good answer. That not, a, and, and, and I want to, Dean, I'm going to give you a little bit of advice here. And I understand I am a howler monkey, a train chimp. I, I get that. But I've, I've watched enough of this stuff, and you need to have an answer for a few different things. One, you can't just go on out there as like, I like to work with the other side. That's going to get you killed in the primary. You try this other side crap, you're going to be done. I don't care what these experts say. You will Nothing will burn your bridges faster when you're trying to appeal to the Democrats, telling people how much you want to work with Republicans. All right? Second of all, you're going to need to explain to everyone exactly why Joe Biden who has had one of the most successful first terms in the history of this country, should not be running again without saying, old people should go away. Because you really, you, you really kind of, you know, you keep saying fresh blood, you know, new perspective, but what you're really saying is he's too old. And, the, you know, as long as he seems to be pretty competent, and lately he seems to be pretty competent, he seems to be, seems to be running the, the rest of the, uh, the Republican Party in circles. I, you're going to need to have an answer to that. 
Because regardless of what you think, no, the majority of Democrats do not want to replace Joe Biden. The majority of Democrats don't. And the other thing is this, is that you're going to have to win over labor. And I can tell you right now, a lot. one of the, one of the narratives I've heard from people who are in your district who are pro-union is they don't feel that, that you're on their side. They don't feel like you're on their side because you're going in. And, and it's nothing against anything you've said or anything like this. Joe Biden is clearly the most pro-union president we've ever had. And here you are saying he should go. That's a narrative and that's a visual you're going to need to address and fix if you're going to have any chance at being able to, you know, knock off a primary challenger. I, I firmly believe Minnesota 3 is now out of reach for the Republicans that, you know, unless there is a truly atrocious Democratic candidate that just the Democrats can't get excited about, that and, and, they, and on top of it, an exceptional Republican candidate that the Republicans, you know, that, that seems to be drawing away moderate Democrats, I don't think there's a chance. I'm going to just remind you of one thing. I have watched Minnesota 3 for many years. I have seen way too many Democrats try to do the, I want to work with the other side as this narrative. And then about, oh, four or five weeks before the election, they're calling me up saying, hey, progressive buddy, I need to get on your show and talk about my progressive cred. And that tells me that right now, it's like, oh, you're, you're about to get beaten, beat pretty bad. That the guy that's been screaming about, I don't need the left side of my party is all of a sudden like, I'm a born again Wellstonian. Yeah. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the uh, phone number. Uh, when we do come on back, uh, of course, a, a very popular podcast, This Queer Book Saved Our, My Life. J.P. Dare Bogosian is going to join us in studio to talk about the podcast and the new season that's coming up. That's up next. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Uh, yeah, it's good. Um, this Queer Book Saved My Life is an exceptional podcast. You've heard it here on AM 950. Joining me right now is the host of that podcast, J.P. Dare Bohosian. He is kind enough to take some time today and uh, talk about the podcast, the new season, the new format, too. We get to talk about yes. that and and kind of the importance of what he, you're doing. Uh, JP, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here. No, this is a no-brainer, man. This is I I have got a lot of questions about the origin and kind of the genesis of this, but I want to just kind of start off for everyone out there. What was your experience before you started doing this? What was your background? My background. Oh, wow, that's a <laughs> that's a long story. Uh, but I used to work in broadcasting, broadcast TV, yeah. uh, for ten years, where I got a lot of the skill set I think developed to put on a podcast and record it. And then I worked in LGBTQ health equity mm -hmm. uh, for a number of years here in the state of Minnesota, trying to advance that, working with a variety of different clinics and health insurance companies, medical academic degree programs. And then I also spent some time working in higher education and in a very variety of chief chief diversity officer roles. So I got to imagine working in the L. LGBTQ in the health uh, on the health sector that at least it was more receptive here than other states where you know you bring this up and it's you know it's a no it's no from the, the beginning here at least in Minnesota and other states there are other states as well where common sense and decency rule yeah. but imagine it was a little bit easier to do that job 
back in that day because Minnesota was a little bit more open-minded. Yes, it was. And I think, though, that I w- you know, the data that we cr- – collected, there was a community health survey that we did. And about every year we did it, about 2% of respondents would tell us that they had been denied care because they were LGBTQ. Um, So that was really terrifying even to see that on such a consistent basis. But yes, Minnesota on the whole, the degree programs, the clinics, the major health systems, I did a whole like transgender health um, conference, Mm -hmm. a day-long thing for Fairview M Health uh, a number of years ago. So that was really exciting to be able to work with folks because they were very much, and Minnesota has really proven itself uh, a leader in this, I think, throughout the country as well. So Mm -hmm. particularly with the Minnesota LGBTQ standards of inclusion that this organization Mm -hmm. um, created with the Bush Foundation. You obviously have, you bring the the resume, the the credentials here. (laughs) You came across I, 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 I'm going to flatter you here because you came across an idea that it, it – I mean, I mean, anyone can come on. I mean, we, there's podcasts about, you know, murders and, and sports and betting and all these things. You actually came up with a concept of explaining to people who are not necessarily going to read these books why these books are important – delivered in a style which basically list just listening to your podcast it becomes wildly apparent why these books should be available everywhere where did that idea come from i think the idea came from is that i had i spent a lot of time reading as an individual and developing this passion for recognizing that books were more sometimes than just you know a beach read or you know a good thrilling read that there was a really important component to them. And when we started having all of the book bans happening across the country, and when I was seeing books that I liked being banned out of schools or out of public libraries, I was thinking, well, wait a minute, there is a value here that I don't think, to your point, that people are talking about. So Mm. I thought, well, if I talk to, invite queer guests to come onto the show and talk about what is this book, right? What were the life-saving features that it had for you? And life-saving is different for every guest that comes on. For some of them, it was the language to be able to come out to their family. For some, it was to begin their gender affirmation process. For some, it was the language to, or the framework, the tools, the skill set to process an abusive relationship that they had. So it really varies from guest to guest. And we bring them on and we tell them, you know, what is it? What was it about this book? What were the, you know, the themes, the skills that you got out of that? And then we bring the author in because having, you know, worked in LGBTQ health equity, having worked in broadcasting, like I know that authors getting their stories out into the world is hard to do. And so I wanted to talk to the author, like, what did it take to get this book out there? What did you have to navigate? How did the book writing it changed you as an individual? And then to bring everybody together in that same conversation, Mm -hmm. to have the guest who's had this book save their life talking to that author has been really remarkable. You know, it's great. I just get to sit back, turn my microphone off, and let them just talk to each other, which is really exciting to see that moment happen between them. It's it's fascinating because we as a culture, and I'll bring up the one when I was a kid growing up. Uh, you know, it was the one that so many girls read. Are you there, God? It's me, and Margaret. You yeah. know, it was very you know common book, and was one of these things that helped girls. You know, as they were growing up, and it, it was kind of a, a benchmark there. And whereas you can say that to a lot of people, it's like, oh, you remember? You name a book from your youth that was important to you. Yeah, when you when it comes to books for the LGBTQIA plus community, that 
when you when you bring that kind of comment up, there just is a disconnect that well, no, I even though I had books and they helped me get through it, they don't need books. Mm-hmm. And so by doing it, and seriously, <laughs> it's seriously, it's kind of this mentality. It's like wait, kind of stupid, but but by what you do very you know sneakily, if I can just say, oh. is you 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 basically just no, this is just like anyone else going through. Whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. you know, you're going through puberty, um, you're, you're, you're starting to date, you're having a hard time trying to figure out what college you're going to. There's always books that resonate, and, and especially kids that read a lot, there are books there. The same exact thing goes for any, any person, regardless of who they are, what their race is, their religion, their background, their sexual identity. Having that base and well, I think that that's the thing which is the, the, the incredible teachable moment about your podcast is you have the ability – to basically show these people who are insisting that these people don't need these books that no, just like they needed their books, this the, the community having these books available for the community, there is an incredible need and a purpose behind it. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and a number of the books actually that we feature on the show, and it's not us featuring them. We we recruit the guests, and the guests come and tell us right what the book is. Mm-hmm. But a number of those books are actually firsts. It's the first time that a book like that is in the world. And so I think that does speak to where we're moving as a country and is in the publishing sector is that we're able to finally have these books that are in the world. You can't read what isn't there. And so it's really important, I think, to also acknowledge that we're finally getting these books published. And it is so life-saving, finally, mm-hmm. to go into a library, whether that's your school library, your public library, to go into a bookstore, your indie bookstore, and say, oh, my gosh, there is a book that reflects my life mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't necessarily get from other books. And so it's really – we're living in a really powerful moment right now. And I like to share with folks that, yes, we have a massive slew of book bans that are happening across yes. the country. And it's very – terrifying to see that. But we also have record sales happening right now with LGBTQ fiction. And also what's driving that, young adult fiction is Mm -hmm. really driving that right now. And what we're seeing in young adult uh, LGBTQ fiction and books is actually, I think, the most revolutionary right now because they're doing things that authors haven't been able to do before in a space that there's a big market for young readers right now. They want to read this. Well, and and if I can say, hey, idiots trying to do book bans, uh, you know what you're doing is you're letting everyone know about the books you're trying to ban. And everyone wants to read them now. Yeah. You're, thank you. You've done the absolute polar opposite of what you were trying to do. Now, you said you have guests come in. I got to believe you got guests begging to come on your show. And I mean, I mean, is it easier to recruit now? You're what, is this season three you're in now? Or season um, four? We actually just stopped doing seasons because <laughs> it was going for so long. We we're like, let's just go into infinity here. So it just so, it, when you yeah. initially started, obviously, you probably had to recruit people and say, mm-hmm. I kind of need you to come and do this. Are you having that problem now or are a lot of people coming to you saying, no, I got a book I got to talk to you about? It's uh, The show is set because you have someone reaching out to you saying, no, get me and this author on the air. I think it's a mixture actually of the two. So I think that we do have a lot more folks who know of the show now and they're reaching out to us through social media, through our website, and they're saying, hey, I want to be on the show. We also do some guest recruitment because we want to make sure that we're still intentional of the full rainbow, right, that we have a variety of different stories uh, that are ensured to be, you know, that we're reflective as well Mm -hmm. of the large audience that's out there that want to read these books. And so we want to make sure that that's reflective of them. Are, are the authors, I mean, you know, when it comes to the authors, and you, you get in touch with them. What, most of the time, I imagine, as you said, it's and I, I do enough author interviews here. It's like, <laughs> you want me to talk on air? Sure, I'll be there. Uh, sometimes not the case, though. I mean, I have had some people that are like, I don't want anyone to know about the book I've just published. Okay, you know, all right. Uh, talk about the reaction you get from the, the authors and that when, when you call them up and say, hey, I've got a fan. I want to feature on this and feature this book. 
you know, is, is most of the time it's like in a heartbeat, tell me where and when sort of thing? There are a number that are like that. They yeah. absolutely want to talk with, not only about their book, they want to talk to this guest. You know, I think a lot of the authors are having this very profound moment, being able to sit in a room or a virtual studio and hear a, a, a reader talking about not just what a fun read it was, but like, this is saving to me and this is how it saved me. And thank you for putting that, you know, writing this book and putting it onto the world. So we have a lot of authors that are having that profound moment. And then some authors are actually, the books have been out for a while, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years in some instances. And so I think they're also like, wow, like people are still reading my book and they're still Mm -hmm. getting this out of it. And so I think they're also having that kind of moment of seeing how a book lives out in the world beyond what the author has done. And so I think it's really fun for them to come back to the book and come back to the process and see what it, you know, what it did for these readers and also to reflect for them on how they're different now in Mm -hmm. writing the book and what they think about it. And if they, I always ask authors, I'm like, if you had to, you know, do it all over again, what would that be like, you know? And it's a fun, you know, interesting take for them to go, oh, yeah, well, if I did it, you know, wrote it now, I'd have to kind of change, you know, Mm -hmm. these these particular things. Like, I remember we had a New York Times bestseller, Jennifer Finney Boylan, who wrote a memoir uh, about being, you know, a trans woman. And now she goes, I was basically writing that for my Republican mom and her bridge club. (laughs) And she's like, but if I wrote that today, you know, she's like, when I look at it now, it kind of felt like apology, like I'm apologizing about this. She's like, today, I would write it completely different. It would be unapologetic. And I would absolutely be like, this is what it is. I'm not apologizing for who I am. And you know, let's let's find a way of, of moving forward. Well, and, and the, when you bring that point up, I mean, is it important to you to try to get books from 20 years ago? Because it does show how the culture has changed and that it was, I'm sorry. I, I mean, this is, I don't mean to upset you. This is just who I am yeah. to a person that's like, nope, this is who I am. And that's it. Is it is it nice to be able to have books that were been published over the last say, thirty years or so? So you have that kind of this is what it used to be like. Yeah, we've even had. I mean, we've gone even further back than that. We've had some James Baldwin, Thomas Mann, mm-hmm. so stuff that's considered classic LGBTQ literature, and it's really interesting because a lot of those guests are you know older LGBTQ folks now mm-hmm. within the community. So to hear their stories talking about it, and in some way, it's really I think important for younger listeners because they're hearing about these books that came out 15, 20, 20 30 years ago and they're hearing like wow some this is something that it happens you know I'm not the only one that's felt this way I'm part of a com- community and that community has existed for you know much longer than the last five years right and so I think it's important for folks for those books to be featured on the show as well because we see the history of the queer community JP Derbahosian is joining us right now that this queer book saved my life uh, we have a book ban somewhere in the south where they're taking a book off the shelf because the last the man's last name, Last name is gay, mm-hmm. not because the book has anything to do with LGBTQ rights, but that's where it is. We do live in a bit of a better society here. Uh, there was the, uh, the the county books down the south side here where basically they wanted them to remove books and they said, no, we're not going to do it. We actually had a charter school up in the north metro where there was pressure to remove these books. And I was very impressed with the response saying, no, there are kids in this school that need these books. We also had that, um, in, not necessarily with the book per se, but the, the, the Drag Queen Story Hour out in Chasco where the people were trying to shout that down and shut that down. The, the reality is, is that we, we have a nice – we have a lot of common sense here that basically says just because you don't like a book doesn't mean you don't want to read it. Trust me. Uh, Clive Cussler, no, I'm not reading any more of his books. I mean, it just <laughs> – he started – when you keep putting yourself in the book, what are you doing? Just, no, I'm done reading you. <laughs> that being said is I can easily avoid that. 
there almost seems to be this dehumanization element going on Absolutely. here. That is, it's not, they're not really human, so we don't have to have the books there. And that's, I guess, one of the things which I'm glad about with Minnesota is that they that we're not falling for what you're seeing work in other places is that at least here there is the common sense like no 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 just because you don't want the book doesn't mean other people don't and so we're not going to allow you to make decisions for other people i sometimes get frustrated we always hear about florida 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 but nobody's talking about minnesota and the great things that's mm-hmm. your point that we're doing and like minnesota gives me hope to yes. live in the, you know to live in, as a, as a Queer person in this country, like you want to be in Minnesota, you, as much so as a California or you know New England. And I, I wish that we got more credit. I wish we got as much airtime and and newsprint about what we're doing here because we really are the antithesis to Florida, and that's really important to know. But also, I want to say that you know, the book bans are very coordinated by a very small number of yes. people. You know, the Washington Post found out they released it this year. A report they looked at thirty-seven states. The book challenges there, 11 people. Mm. 11 people were behind those. And so we're dealing maybe not with such a wide, you know, ranging desire. We have a very small group of people who are very extreme and who, you know, and their viewpoints and also thinking that queerness is a choice. You know, mm. we see a lot of that as well and the uh, why they're trying to ban things that they're like, well, if I if my children read this book, they're going to choose to be gay. They're going to choose to be trans. Mm. And so if we get rid of them, then they'll never learn how to do that, which is, you know, based, it's, it's based <laughs> on ignorance. And, and, and yeah. that's it is. And this is where I'll come in, because that's a big key of it. They don't want people thinking, mm-hmm. well, when I grew up, I read this author and that helped me through this. So they should be able to do. They don't want the people to think mm-hmm. about it that way. They want to think about it as this has got to be stopped. And so it's the, the entire argument is banked on ignorance. And this is why I think Minnesota and other, some other states as well kind of get past this is because we're not big on ignorance here. We're not big on ignorance. And, and it, it, don't get me wrong. There are <laughs> – oh, can I tell you some stories? Uh, there are some ignorant <laughs> people here. But at the same time, as, as a society, you know, there does seem to be this mentality is just, you know, because I'm not comfortable with something doesn't mean – it doesn't exist and it doesn't have a right to exist. Mm-hmm. And this idea of just getting rid of all the books, even though they are helping people, and that is the key, it's helping people with their own life. Uh, that That's that's a concept. And not just queer people. No, not we, it's, just, a lot of people, yeah. Families, literally mom, parents, yesterday yeah. I had a listener who identifies as a cis straight male. And he called in and goes, I have a family member and I don't know what to do. And I listened to the podcast and we've interacted on social media and they're like, can I just have a conversation? And I was like, yeah, let's have a conversation about that. So I think it's also been very interesting to see the family members and friends of queer people listening to the show and reading these books and Mm -hmm. reaching out to us as well to go, oh, I now kind of get what they're going through. And I think I can be a better family member, I can be a better friend to them because mm. I've listened to the episode and I've also read the book now. Yeah, and and basically if they're trying to, their whole thing is about fear and the reality is, is this is, we should be about welcoming and acceptance and unity and compassion. And that's that's what we should be as a society, for goodness sakes, I can only dream we can have that as a society. And and I and I think it's 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 so important. Like I said, it's a, you, you, you pulled off a neat trick here and I don't, it's not a trick and, and I, I don't want to diminish it or this. But what you have done is brilliant. It's important. That's a big key, as opposed to the the Howler Monkey exhibit. That's my show. Yours is what you what you're doing is very important, and I can't commend you en- enough. I think you're doing a magnificent job, and I'm so 
I mean, so geeked to be able to chat with you because you you're you're doing something which there are so many people who couldn't figure out a way to to do it, and you're doing it, and you're doing it effectively, and I think that that's just amazing. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, how? Okay, so if you're if you're listening to me, and you have not heard uh, this queer book saved my life. How can people? I mean, pretty much available every podcast place, right? Yeah. So I mean, thisqueerbook.com. If you want to go there, and you can search for this queer book saved my life on any you know Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeart, Google Podcasts, all of those different areas. So yeah. All right. Absolutely. And uh, thisqueerbook.com. I'll link to everything. I'll link to this webpage, and then once again, just go to your i your podcast page. Type it in. It will be there. JP, thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming by today. Thank you. And you come back anytime. Please, please. Well, I can say that I, I've been on a number, promoting the podcast on a number of, of outlets. And when I tell, like, friends, like, hey, you know, I've been on, you know, da 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 They're always like, oh, great. Good for you. When I told them I was coming here, though, I literally saw their eyes, like, light up, like, no way. <laughs> so, you know, the work that you do is really important. And Are you I know sure it's not a, a no friends, way in a bad thing? Like, no, oh. they're very excited. <laughs> they were like, really? No way. That's so cool. So... Yeah. C-SPAN 3, you say. <laughs> <laughs> J.P. Terabosian is kind enough to join us. This Queer Book Saved My Life. It is an important podcast. Regardless who you are, listen to it. It is really spectacular. Uh, congratulations on the non-season non starter, just continuing with the new format. J.P., as always, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. J.P. Derbohosian. This queer book saved my life. Uh, just, yeah. Um, that's an important podcast, people. That is an important podcast. It, 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 like I said, it, it's what it does is it takes every person you ever knew. And I brought up the, are you there, God? It's me and Margaret. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, every kid I knew growing up had a book like that. That was just, that was, you know, you know, worn cover. They read it multiple times. You know, they found solace in it. They found a relate, you know, relatability to it. Allowing people to have books like that is a good thing. It helps them. It helps us as a society. And frankly, if you're one of these people who sits out there and says, no, they shouldn't have it. You definitely need to listen to this podcast a few times. You really do. I'll challenge you on that. I'll challenge you. Go listen to that podcast. If you don't, then it's not about, you know, anything legitimate. It's just basically about, you know, trying to use hate and fear as a political weapon. But if you do, I'll give you credit for it. And the reality is, is you'll probably walk away really quick and saying, oh, oh, now I get it. 952-946-6205, still 4-0. Uh, Astros, once again, they jumped on uh, on uh, Gray early uh, with an error as well and thrown in there to get four runs in the first. And they're showing the plate discipline of a Little League home run derby at this point. So uh, it's, this is... <laughs> hey, hey, we still got tomorrow too. That's a one o'clock start time. Uh, I tell you what, we'll take a break. Come on back. Uh, we've got Max Nesterak next hour right here on The Shoe. Hour number two of the show here on your Tuesday. Matt, Brett, Patrick here. I don't have your version of that shirt yet. I don't know why his came and the one I got for Broadcorp came, but yours did not come. It's, I see uh, how it is. 
So yeah, it's only only getting fun stuff for Patrick, but not for me. Well, I mean, yeah, most of the time. But I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's. Oh, we got a man on first and second, no outs. You you were saying that part of the problem is in the case we're playing a day game here in October, and all of a sudden you Late said it, yeah. you said something that's like, oh my God, you're right. The shadows are going to be a pain in the tuckus, aren't they? Yeah, they've been showing it on the broadcast, and you basically can't see anything right now, and that just makes that Astros first inning so home run so big because it's going to be a few innings before you can probably see anything and launch some sort of comeback if you can. So yeah. We'll see. Not looking too good so far for the Twinkies. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll we'll have to see indeed. Uh, but the the twin it's four zero right now. Bottom of the third inning. Still a lot of game to go. And we start getting dark here. Probably by the seventh inning. I mean, so we'll probably I mean, that will help things out as well. Um, the when was the last time you were in a pharmacy? In a pharmacy. A pharmacy. Yeah. Um, maybe like a week ago. How crazy was it behind the pharmacy counter? Didn't appear to be that crazy at that time, but I've certainly been to somewhere. Yeah, yeah you, you've got someone that's short-staffed, and you got one guy trying to like fill everyone's prescriptions when you've got like three people in line, someone at the drive-through. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've certainly seen that. How it, it ever since, and I, I know it's easy to sort of say since COVID. I remember going to being at a Target, and they had one of the CVSs in there, and I remember that being just a freaking madhouse. And this is apparently right now, and I did not know anything about this. This is from KSTP. Some Walgreens pharmacy staff, including in the Twin Cities metro area, began a three-day walkout on Monday. It's expected to impact roughly 500 stores across the country. The protest of unsafe working conditions follows a walkout by CVS employees in Kansas City two weeks ago that ended in a promise for a company to improve staffing. It is painfully clear if you go through any of these chain pharmacies that this is something they are woefully inadequately staffed. And reminder, this is a pharmacy. This is not a pharmacist. This is not a nurse practitioner or anything like this. This is a six-year college degree. To become a pharmacy tech, a phar- or not a pharmacy tech, but a pharmacist, mm-hmm. is a six-year degree, and they, they get run like it's a freaking McDonald's at lunchtime. You know, it's, it's just constantly just running around frantically trying to fill orders. I mean, I'm, it, it really is. First of all, I have to say the fact that we don't have more mistakes is, I think, a, a, a test to the, the, the training of the pharmacist. But the reality is this is kind of weird that, the, you know, there, there's just this is a consistent problem. And it just seems like these pharmacy chains are just reluctant to say, OK, we're going to have to spend a few extra dollars and hire some extra people. I don't think this is a new problem at all. I Years ago, I used to work at Walgreens for a while back mm. in the 2000s, and I just remember all of the pharmacy techs basically just always looked tired, always stressed out. And that was, you know, we're talking early and more like mid and late 2000s, and that was still probably before they're even more short-staffed than they are now. So I can't mm. imagine that's improved over the years. I've been in a, I was just in a Walgreens last Thursday. I had to get my COVID and my flu shot in there. It was chaos behind the counter, although they actually had seven people working back there. It was still pretty chaotic. One person was working the drive-thru. One person was working the register. They had one person who was only doing shots. And then the other four people were frantically trying to fill every order, every prescription that was coming in. And then you get customers who don't realize you're short-staffed and they're why am I not getting my prescription right now? Yeah, that certainly doesn't help the situation either. But going, thinking about Walgreens particularly, since there is apparently this three-day walkout that's going on here. Okay, I've been in Walgreens. You what? All you have to do is add, 
And I, remember when they were going to increase this, the costs for, for the, because of, of labor costs that restaurants were going to, you know, they're, they're increasing the minimum wage and everyone, all the Republicans are like, every restaurant in the state is going to close. How'd that go for you? Oh, that's right. You're idiots. Uh, you don't, none of them close. They're all fine. I don't notice it. I mean, sometimes they'll mention, oh, there's an additional cost. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, if I could, if I couldn't afford, say, the twenty dollar entree, charging me twenty one thirty is not going to necessarily break the bank. You know, it's it's not like, oh my god, not the case. You work at a Walgreens, you have so much product there. I mean, from makeup to soda to photos, if people still get photos, uh, various other things. I guess the question I have is 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 just add one or two cents to everything. No one will notice you should have more than enough money to give everyone in the pharmacy a raise plus hire as many other people as you need. I just, are they just, I guess, are they that stupid? I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I get it. I understand retail. Matt, you don't understand margins. Listen, I understand what a penny is. Okay. Hmm. And you can add one penny to every bottle of Pepto-Bismol and Colgate toothpaste and, and anything else. And it's not going to necessarily be the, the the deal breaker you think it's going to be. I don't think anyone's saying it costs thirty three cents instead of thirty two. We're taking our business elsewhere. Maybe, but really, I don't know if you're going to miss them that much. Well, and if you're talking about the big national pharmacies, not necessarily the local ones, let's also take a look at the executive compensation for oh, yeah. some of these guys too. Where, well, I need to get that second yacht, so we can't pay these pharmacy techs more money. Well, and I think what you what you have to the, the day and age of you guys, it, it's interesting. Tomorrow I'm going to go out and go give a speech. Tomorrow I'll talk about that tomorrow afternoon. I'm going to go out and give a speech tomorrow, and and one of the things I'm going to talk about is that this is. You know, the, 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 when you look at the generations, the millennials were an interesting generation because by the time you got to the end of the millennials, they weren't buying what the, the system was saying to them anymore because they couldn't afford a house. They couldn't find a job. They, they basically were saddled with a ton of debt. And this, this, ro- this world of, of wine and roses that were, they were supposed to inherit just is not existing. It does not exist. And, and, it's, and it, they realize it's all been lies. So they're trying to fix the system. And I'll never forget in 2021, was it Lion's Tap? Where was the restaurant? Where the, no, it wasn't Lion's Tap. Lion's Tap had the sign on the door down there, down in Eden Prairie. But it was a restaurant in town where the guy made the comment, if my employee is willing to put in a thousand times more effort, I'll pay them 20% more in salary. And I said, wait a second. Did you just hear what you just said? I don't think you just heard what you just said there because you, it, that is the epitome of what the problem is, is that you this, this, the, we have a world that is dependent on cheap labor. And in the United States, we're not taking it anymore. And I think that th- th- this whole thing with Walgreens is a, a sign of it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that right now. That's probably your main problem is that you're not compensating a lot of these pharmacy techs who are working extremely hard, enough money, and then you end up with a shortage and not enough people to fill prescriptions. And it made me livid, 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 livid. When I realized the auto worker strike right now, forgot about the fact that they, the, the Obama bailed them out. Oh, you know, yeah. Then back then, remember, it was all, we're all in this together. We need to rework <laughs> our contracts. And now all of a sudden, those executives are making $30, $40 million a year in compensation and salary. And they're all like, you're a bunch of moochers who are trying to steal from us. Uh, I mean, I have to admit, the writer strike that came through, they got a heck of a deal. I'm glad to see what they got. Then things look pretty good for them. 
But I, I, yeah, I, I just, I think we are still at a point where no, the conservative movement kept salaries so low for so long that the, the point is now we're going to change this and change this for the better in regards to make sure that, that, that people have, you know, are, are going to at least get a livable wage. I mean, this idea, I think one of the things that's interesting to talk to millennials and even Generation Z, they're furious about the fact that they can't afford a house. They're furious about this. How, how did this happen? And it actually is a legit question. I mean, it, how, how did we get to this point when we just had the housing crisis of 2008 that now, you know, here we are 15 years later and, you know, you would think to yourself, you would have had a glut of houses on the market. They should be somewhat affordable. And now know that if you are under the age of 25, they're saying the likelihood you'll even be ever able to afford a house is, is you know, beyond things. I mean, when I went out to Montrose to go to apple picking out there, out in Delano. People, you know, that's where people are having to go to afford a house is Delano and then just accept the gas prices to go along with it. Wow. That's, an, yeah, that's about where you have to go to get any affordable prices right now, especially since the pandemic. That yeah. certainly didn't help. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's insane trying to get, save up for a down payment for the house. Yeah. I mean, you can't do it. It used to be you could be a pharmacy tech, not the pharmacist. Yeah. Pharmacists lived in a nice house, but you could be a pharmacy tech and have your own house. Today, you're probably working three jobs and living in an apartment and having to share with two other people. That system is going to have to change. And the problem that these executives, I think, realize is that it's the, where, where, where most of the money is going, as you said, executive compensation is such a large piece of the pie now they don't want to shrink that, and so this is this is this is the hill they're going to proverbially die on. That this is they're going to not really kind of go out there. I'm sorry. I think every pharmacist, I think every teacher, I think every nurse, I can think of a lot of professions out there that they are not getting paid nearly what they should be. And when you look at how inflation has gone and how their salaries have not changed, they are indeed thousands and thousands of dollars behind of where they should be if the things just kept up with inflation. And so, and hey, I work in radio. <laughs> it's all kind of the culmination of trickle-down economics. We went to this philosophy in the 80s, pay the executives mm-hmm. more, and we'll all make more money, too. And that never happened over the past 40 years. Well, who was it? Uh, was it, uh, there was a, a, a guest, uh, it was, a, it was a, a guest on a Senate panel, Kennedy, the Republican out of Louisiana, oh, was yeah. questioning him, her, and she basically, and he said, well, what do you, how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to do this? And she said, well, we're going to have to raise taxes. But the reality is, is you can raise taxes and this will solve the problem. You guys have been giving out these massive tax handouts to the wealthy for 20 years. You've had two major ones back in 2002 and just one under the Trump. And the 2002 one, there hasn't been any help to the schools. You guys said this tax cut will help fund the schools. It has not done that. And Kennedy could not get away from that discussion fast enough because, well, we could have a discussion about what is good and what's not. But I don't I don't have time left. i got to go to another meeting. So he couldn't run away from that, that point fast enough. So... We got a lot of things we got to fix, so that, that's an important thing. Uh, all right, so we have got uh, coming up here. Uh, we do not have cool again today. Once again, he's taking a vacation day, I guess. What, what do we? What do we? What do we have today? Uh, we have Max Nesterak filling right. in for Patrick Kulik, and very capable filling. Always uh, enjoy speaking Indeed. with Max. As today, we're primarily uh, talking about an article he worked on, talking about uh, this is something we talked about a 
few months ago, even over a year ago, this subcontractor that was building a number of uh, construction projects yeah. around the Twin Cities that was basically mistreating employees, not paying them full wages or misclassifying them with independent contractor versus employees. Well, this company recently reached a settlement with the Minnesota Attorney General's office, and there's some interesting details that we're going to talk about in here because even though there is a settlement, this guy's not out of the woods in terms of uh, facing more litigation, but we're also going to touch on this new uh, state law that was passed that has to do with uh, these contractors and how they classify employees and if any of these uh, companies that hired this subcontractor could face any issues as well. It's a big story, so we'll be chatting about that. All right. Max Nesterak with Brett right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And today we are joined by Max Nesterak. He is the deputy editor of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics and labor news. As today we are going to be talking about a few of the articles they've been working on over at the Reformer, including the Minnesota Attorney General's office reaching a settlement with a contractor who uh, was under investigation for obstructing labor issues. This was a contractor who, by the way, had many projects throughout the Twin Cities. Plus, we'll also briefly touch on how the pandemic has changed how Minnesotans die, as there are some shocking stats we're going to take a look at. Max, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Always happy to come on. So Keith Ellison's attorney general's office recently entered into an agreement last week with a construction contractor accused of obstructing an investigation into labor abuses. Now, the name of the company is Property Maintenance and Construction, and it's owned by a guy named Leopoldo Pimentel. Now, you might remember this name and a little bit about this story because we talked about this a few months ago, and I think even last year. Uh, basically, Pimentel is this subcontractor who works on a number of projects around the Twin Cities, including Viking Lakes, which is a sprawling mixed-use development in Egan built by the Wilf family, who of course are the owners of the Minnesota Vikings, and that's how we originally started talking about this story last year. Well, now we do have an update. As I mentioned, uh, Pimentel has reached a settlement with the Minnesota Attorney General's office. So before we dive into this, Max, uh, refresh our memories on this. Tell us what kind of properties they worked with and what sorts of violations they are being alleged of uh, having violated. Yeah, Brett. So you said a, we talked about this a couple months ago, and I'm just thinking back. I think it was almost about 18 months ago that we were talking yeah. about this. Um, and I was in the union hall when um, talking to workers when I spoke with you. So it's really been a long Hall for this investigation, uh, which is why the attorney general ultimately brought this law lawsuit for obstruction of an investigation. So the settlement that he uh, they entered into last week is just for the obstruction part. The and this is really going to clear the way for state labor regulators to finish their investigation into property maintenance and construction and and its owner Leo Pimentel. So I expect in the coming weeks. Um, or months that we'll uh, hear more about the results of that investigation. There may be more, uh, un, you know, more uh, another lawsuit to come, and maybe even criminal charges um, against this contractor. Now, you asked what, what kind of projects he they worked on. So they have worked on projects across the Twin Cities metro area, from uh, Viking Lakes, which uh, you mentioned, but also. Uh, the Liffey in um, 
St. Paul, the, London, the new London Byerly's apartments um, down in Richfield, the Marshall on Marshall Street in Minneapolis, um, the Temperance Ridge Senior Living, um, the Haven uh, Wood of Maple Grove. So there's a, a number of properties that are named in this lawsuit from the AG that property maintenance and construction worked on. And so what property maintenance and construction and its owner, Leo Pimentel, are accused of doing is not paying workers all that they're owed. So these workers talked about regularly working 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week, but they say they were never paid time and a half for over 40 hours, which is what um, workers are entitled to under federal law if you're an employee. Now, that status of being an employee is also going to come up and likely be contested because many of the workers were called independent contractors. Um, and that classification uh, will likely become an issue. This is a rampant problem in the construction industry where workers are deemed independent contractors. And the reason is, is it saves employers money because they don't have to pay into workers' compensation, unemployment, uh, or Social Security when they're paying an independent contractor versus paying an employee. And so I expect to see that issue um, at play. And if, if it's deemed that these workers were actually employees and not independent contractors, um, that means that uh, there's a bigger case here of not paying uh, your fair share of taxes. So I'll be waiting to watching to see what um, comes out of this Department of Labor and Industry investigation into property maintenance and construction. Well, not only did he was he accused of uh, those violations that we were just talking about, but it also sounds like he's a rather well, I'll say, kind of a confrontational guy. Being that, as you wrote, he ended up threatening a reporter when asked about the investigations, and it sounds like he was also telling his employees to basically, well, lie to investigators when asked about what was happening. So uh, he certainly had that working uh, as well against him, as he kind of uh, seemed like a rather confrontational guy that wasn't very uh, happy about these allegations. That's right. So as part of this settlement agreement, Leo Pimentel did not admit to any wrongdoing. But when you read the settlement, it says he agrees not to threaten employees, not to tell them to lie to investigators. And those are things that he was accused of in the AG's office original um, complaint and, and things that workers told me. Workers told me he threatened them. And uh, like you said, he also threatened me when I reached out for comment and said, you know, you publish the story at your own risk. So we'll see. Again, there could be more that comes out of that. It, it seems like the investigation for labor regulators is really focused on the money aspect to it. But it does reveal the chilling effect that uh, bosses can have on workers, especially a workforce that is largely uh, undocumented. And, you know, they're easier to exploit because they're afraid that um, if they speak out, they could lose work or that they could be reported to immigration authorities and be deported. Now, under the Biden administration, there is a rule that if you're a victim of labor abuses or labor crimes, um, you can be fast-tracked to... Uh, deferred action on deportation. So there is some protections there under the Biden administration for victims of crimes for immigrants um, and don't have documentation. But um, 
again, a, a very scary thing. And so one interesting thing that came out of this settlement agreement with the AG's office is Pimentel will have to have a meeting with all of his workers with an AG investigator there in which he tells the workers, you may cooperate with state officials and um, you may not be retaliated against and I won't retaliate against you. And when I talked to a labor lawyer, he said that he's never seen that before. So that he's going to have to hold this meeting with workers with an official from the AG's office present. So that seems significant. And I want to back up and talk about something else that you just mentioned with this settlement, because in the settlement, as we talked about, Pimentel does not have to admit to any wrongdoing, but he's still not necessarily in the clear yet from any litigation. So he still potentially faces many other legal issues right now, even with this settlement, right? That's correct. That's correct. So um, and that's just something I'm trying to uh, be very clear about, because, you know, part of the settlement, he also has to pay out. Uh, $7,500, and he's accused of uh, stealing upwards of over $100,000 in wages, could be much more than that. Um, And so I just don't want readers or listeners to get the impression, oh, he settled for $7,500, and that's the end of it. I think we're going to see more uh, legal action in this case. And as we also talked about, misclassifying workers is very common, not just in Minnesota, but around the country. And earlier this year, we did have the legislature pass a new law that was aimed on cracking down on wage theft by, well, basically making general contractors responsible for unpaid wages by their subcontractors. So I guess that leads me to this question as to, uh, as we mentioned, that this Pimentel and his contractors worked on many properties around the Twin Cities. Do any of these properties that they work with face any legal issues or any of the contractors that hired Pimentel and his crew face any legal issues so far? Or is it pretty much just uh, Pimentel that's going to be facing the bulk of any any additional legal problems? That's an interesting question and something that I am curious to see how it plays out. What I do know is that with these projects where the labor agreements were entered into before the legislature passed this new law, which many of them were, um, that doesn't apply. And that new law that you mentioned makes general contractors liable for wage theft that occurs on their sites the same way that they're liable for uh, safety violations and accidents by their subcontractors that happen on their development. And this is a law change that contractors fought fiercely against um, because they say, you know, we can't study the books of all our subcontractors. There's too much going on. But the way it plays out in the real world for the worker is that the general contractor can hire sub subcontractors knowing that they may only be able to ask that low, offer that low rate based on exploiting their workers, but they have plausible deniability that they uh, don't know what's going on. And then it's up to the worker to get that money back from the subcontractor who could be fly by night, never see him again. So this kind of flips the script and makes general contractors liable and having to pay workers back, make them whole for the wages they're owed. And then that general contractor can go to the sub and take legal action to get those wages back. So it's not like the general contractor just has to eat it, um, eat that theft. It means they, the legal onus is on them 
to right the wrong rather than the workers who in often have the least power, uh, especially compared to large developers like Viking Enterprises. Yeah, that would make sense when uh, generally, as we were talking about Pimentel in this example, a lot of these workers are generally immigrants from Central and Latin America, and they're really not going to have the ability to go take on a subcontractor that, as you said, might be kind of a fly-by-night thing. So it does move the onus a little bit in that uh, in those situations. Uh, you can read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com. Again, title of the piece is Minnesota AG Reaches Settlement with Contractor Over Obstructing Investigation of Labor Abuses and that's a follow-up on that story we covered uh, about 18 months ago talking about the controversy with workers uh, over at that Vikings Lakes condominium and of course that spread with this uh, subcontractor running into other labor issues as well again read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com I briefly wanted to touch on uh, one more piece of news that you guys are working on over at the reformer and this has to do with what Christopher Ingram wrote today which talked about how the pandemic has changed how Minnesotans have died over the past few years because obviously we've seen a spike in deaths in Minnesota over the past few years due to COVID but there's also been other causes and other increases in deaths in well and deaths as well in Minnesota in fact relative to 2019 some of these numbers are quite shocking where drug overdose deaths in 2022 were up 56 percent compared to 2019 while deaths caused by excessive drinking were up by 40% since 2019. So, Max, these are some pretty shocking numbers because I don't think a lot of people would be surprised that our overall mortality rate has unfortunately increased, but most people probably thought that was just due to COVID and not other causes, and lo and behold, we have some uh, pretty stunning numbers that are being reported on right now. That's right. So my my colleague Christopher Ingram has has been on the death beat. (laughs) We've been Thing, um, and covering these so-called deaths of despair, uh, the increase in deaths from overdoses, excessive drinking, as well as homicide and, and suicide, although suicides are roughly unchanged overall, although experts say that suicide deaths are now trending younger than they used to. So um, it is uh, concerning. The other thing that is uh, worth noting is that you know, statewide, the leading cause of death in 2020 was was cancer and heart disease, which combined to take nearly 20,000 lives in Minnesota. Um, accidents like falls, vehicle crashes, and unintentional overdoses uh, took 3,500 lives. So, um, so there's a lots of different ways um, uh, that people are dying, but it's very troubling to see those so-called deaths of despair on the rise. Well, you can read more about that. Christopher Ingram's great reporting on that over uh, at minnesotareformer.com titled The Pandemic Changed How Minnesotans Die. Again, uh, dive a little bit deeper into that when you get a chance to read a little bit more about that over at minnesotareformer.com. We have been speaking with Max Nesterek. He is the uh, deputy editor of the Minnesota Reformer. Again, that website one more time, minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. Max, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Brett. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM950. AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Well, the Twins are showing us they weren't prepared for this game. Uh, that's just that. 5-0, there was another home run. They pulled gray. It's in the fifth inning right now. They're two on, no outs. They got Pagan in there to pitch, and uh, you know 
Hopefully he can get them out of the jam. But the entire the the lineup doesn't you know. No one can get a hit. No, and and before anyone says, well, the shadows. Well, the shadows don't seem to be bothering the Houston Astros. Shadows don't seem to be bothering the Houston Astros. So, this is just—it's a team that's young. It's new. Hasn't been to the playoffs, and frankly, it is the epitome of "I'm just happy to be there." And frankly, if you look at Game Two, if not for Lopez and Carlos Correa, they wouldn't have won that game. I mean. <laughs> I mean, granted, I mean, it's a big, big minus with Lopez as the starting pitcher, but they just, they don't, it's not that they don't have the heart, it's just they don't have the discipline, they don't know what it takes to do this. And right now they're getting, they're getting pushed around by the much bigger team on the playground. And, you know, my guess is, and I'm once again, I'm seeing the plate discipline of a little league home run derby out there and... The reality is, is I think it's only going to get worse tomorrow as everyone goes up there is like, I'm going to hit a home run. And that's all they're going to be doing is swinging for the fences and popping out and grounding out and striking out because that's what it is. I'm not saying the game's not over. It's got a long way to go, but I have yet to see anything from this team today that tells me they're going to come back and, and, and possibly win this game. This is, you know, yeah, I don't see anything. 952-946-6205-952-946-6205. We'll put that aside. I, just touching on something that Brett and I talked about, there was an interesting story the other day on Axios about homeownership. Doesn't, it's basically not in the cards for many 20-somethings, uh, 20 cities, 20-somethings. Steep prices and mortgage rates poise seemingly insurmountable hurdles to homeownerships, and renting isn't necessarily affordable uh, affordable alternative. While rents in the Twin Cities are growing much slower than other big metros, they're still eating up a large share of the young people's incomes. One of three, one in three Generation Zers, 34% surveyed by Freddie Mac, say owning a home feels impossible in their lifetime, up from 27% in 2019. Saving for a down payment is the biggest obstacle. They say it's one reason the typical first, uh, first-time home buyer last year was a record high 36 years old per the National Association of Realtors. Watching mortgage rate mortgage rates inch closer to eight percent is one of the most disheartening things in my life, says Nicole Cerebrus, twenty six, who tells Axios she and her partner have hoped to leave their one bedroom apartment for about two years. The Minneapolis area middle school teacher pays says rather twenty three percent of her income goes towards the, her half of the rent. Across the U.S., pinched young people are fanning out from big cities, returning to their childhood bedrooms, or moving in with parents. Fannie Mae researchers found thirty percent of young workers are willing to live further away from the office. For more inexpensive housing, nearly a third of Generation Z adults say they're living at home long-term, New York Times report, about uh, America's housing shortage has helped hike the cost of both buying and renting. The vast majority of young renters are renting for lifestyle reasons, preferring the flexibility to move. RealPage chief economist Jay Parson told Axios, uh, most of the Twin Cities' youngest renters are spending at least 30% of their income on rent, according to the U.S. Census data. In all of the 100 biggest U.S. metros, over a third of 15 to 24-year-old householders who spend 30% or more on their income on housing, uh, many generations eaters renters have lower incomes but also lower bills beyond rent, which allows them to live in pricier locations, according to Parsons. Older Americans on fixed incomes are especially burdened by the high housing costs, contributing to rising homelessness among baby booners, said the Wall Street Journal. Sweet deal for North Loop Apartments swayed Caleb Peterson, 24, to postpone his plans to buy an investment property this spring. Socially, I prefer not to buy a house. Um, 
He likes the amenities and the walkable location. He expects to buy a duplex, triplex, or a large home when he would uh, both live and rent eventually because paying that rent means the money isn't going to anything for you. So, and yeah, I, I think it's, this is kind of the, this is something that the millennials and Generation Z sort of started to see in a large scale, that this was something that was, yeah, indeed, you know, it, the, the, the fact that wages haven't kept up, the fact that, that um, you know, the housing prices have become obnoxious. And once again, I bought our, we bought our house. I remember when we bought our house, it was 168, I think it was 168. And I remember my dad coming in and now my dad had, had grown up in the Twin Cities and was at the University of Minnesota and we live in Hopkins. And he sort of said, Matt, 168 to live in Hopkins. Man, it's Hopkins, 168. And I looked at him and said, yeah, I mean, it's it's actually a pretty good deal. And at the time my wife and I were looking to buy a house, you would walk into a showing and there would be 20 cards on the table. Ten minutes after the showing started, all of them saying dollars $50,000 over asking price. We were lucky we got the house when we got the house. That was, you know, 20-plus years ago. And... The reality is is that these houses now, and I don't trust Zillow per se, but the house is basically worth basically twice as much as it was before. So, I it's 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 hard to see you know where you know it it's it's basically it it just seems like this is some sort of insurance to make sure the housing crisis of two thousand eight never happens again. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Uh, as part of the Republicans' nationwide assault on voting rights, Wisconsin right-wingers pushed for a liberal justice on the state Supreme Court to recuse herself from a crucial redistricting case in which she could cast the tie-breaking vote, rejecting recusal Justice Janet Protasiewicz cited opinions from a litany of Republican judges, including U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's recent decision not to recuse from a tax case. As Justice Alito has emphasized, when there is no sound reason for a justice to recuse, the justice has a duty to sit, Prestasiewicz wrote in the orders published Friday. Alito had participated in a fawning interviews published by the Wall Street Journal opinion section that were conducted by a lawyer who is pushing for the U.S. Supreme Court to hear his case, which the justices then agreed to hear for this term. Uh, Protestowitz, on the other hand, was asked to recuse a Republic, by Republicans because of her way uh, on the way to winning her seat in a pivotal election year. She got a campaign contribution from the Democratic Party of Wisconsin and said the state's legislative maps were gerrymandered, rigged, and unfair, which they are. They are. In her 47-page explanation for not recusing, Protasiewicz noted that the money hadn't come from a party to the redistricting case, which was brought by an individual citizen who wanted their legislative maps ungerrymandered. Regarding her map statements, among the things she cited was a Supreme Court opinion written by another GOP appointee, Antonin Scalia. I simply expressed my personal opinions as permitted by the 2002 case Republican Party versus Minnesota, of Minnesota versus White, she said. There, Scalia wrote for the GOP-appointed majority that it was a violation of the First Amendment to bar judicial candidates from stating their views on disputed legal and political issues. 
underscoring that the gerrymandering issue is about entrenching and wielding power, a particularly pronounced problem in Wisconsin. State Republicans have threatened to impeach Protasiewicz. She won her election earlier this year in a landslide over conservative Daniel Kelly, who has been appointed by the bench by then-Governor Scott Walker, a Republican and yet another name-check of a Republican appointee that doubled as his own is Kelly. Protasiewicz has cited Chief Justice John Roberts, questioning whether the campaign contribution has any effect in such land uh, um, landslide election. I won by a landslide, she wrote, of her pivotal victory that determined ideological control of Wisconsin High Court. Not any of these citations would stop Republicans from trying to impeach her, but Protasiewicz's lengthy res, uh, recitation in which she also suggested that her recusal would raise recusal issues for her conservative colleagues would serve as a monumental of their hypocrisy. They do. Um, it's clear. Now, I'm not saying the Republican Party of Wisconsin is not going to still try to impeach her, but it is clear. Do you remember Justice Prosser? Prosser was choky. <laughs> you, remember, you remember Chokey? This was a Supreme Court justice who choked another Supreme Court justice in an elevator because they were angry at them. He choked them. I'm going to choke you. Ah, choke you. So not exactly the most rational guy, not the most even-keeled guy, not exactly the most moderate guy either. Prosser was a very far-right conservative. Prosser has revealed that he was one of the former Supreme Court justices that Voss talked to that basically told, and he, he's very clear, he said, do not do this. Do not impeach her just because she's going to rule a way you don't like. And his argument is impeachment should be for the most harshest of crimes. If you do this, you are opening the door for basically conservative justices when the Democrat, if the Democrats take over, which they eventually will, to basically purge all the Republican justices off the court and there's not much you can do about it. And, and so th basically, at least he has come forward and said that he has told them no. Another Republican that was uh, that was appointed to the Supreme Court. She basically came on out. She also she wrote a, an editorial that basically stated that no, you can't do this. You 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 really are going to basically end up in destroying the credibility of the state if you do this. Now, once again, I mean Voss and these Republicans have know that this is a problem, but the reality is too. I think that they have gotten wind that if they do this, the gig is up either short-term or long-term. And if they do the impeachment, then it's going to go bad for them and very, very quickly. That basically even a lot of Republicans are not of the mindset of, no, 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 no. She won the election. She should be seated. She should be allowed to be there. And it, all it does is it plays into this argument that the Republicans, unless they are basically held accountable— could are, are not going to basically be trusted. And the last thing the Republicans want to do in Wisconsin is actually have their gerrymandered, which they are. They are horribly gerrymandered. If they say they are not, they're lying their asses off, and they can't be Christian if they're lying as badly as they are, so they're not Christian, and they're just a bunch of liars. They are. They're they are the most gerrymandered maps you have ever seen in your life, like with a scalpel to basically ensure that the that the democratic votes were diluted as much as possible that's what they were they did that they don't want the democrats to all of a sudden possibly win the majority even with those gerrymandered maps because then it will never come back to them and they will be the minority and like i said don't get your, don't get me wrong 
you there won't be a safe shredding machine in Wisconsin if the Wisconsin House and Senate go back to the Democrats. They will destroy everything. They will wipe all phones. They will get rid of all things. They do not want anyone to ever know what went on behind the scenes, which, by the way, should be your first sign of <laughs> not exactly above the board government. But the reality is, is I still think there's a legitimate chance these Republicans will do it because they would rather do this, impeach a justice for no other reason. And by the way, kudos to her for basically throwing a bunch of Republican rulings that say that she should be on the Supreme Court. Now, Voss has said he's going to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court to have them pull her off. My guess is going to be is they're going to look at her considering she just expertly quoted a bunch of Republicans that said that, you know, that you can't force someone to recuse themselves uh, unless there's a real legitimate reason for it. So my guess is going to be, uh, don't get me wrong, Alito is, he has so, so little morality. I could see him going against his own arguments. But the, the Supreme Court is likely going to say, no, we're not going to recuse her. She's, she didn't stay in the case, which then goes to the impeachment. I, you know, if they do, I, my gut feeling is they'll still do it because, and, and they'll know that this is setting the, t- the ticking clock that basically that come 2024, Wisconsin is, they're going to have a hard time holding on to a lot of things in Wisconsin. Things in Wisconsin are going to go badly for them. But at the same time, I, you know, I, I would highly recommend that, that you, you should not, you know, think to yourself that they're going to find morality in Wisconsin. They're just, they're just not. And now, and by the way, can I also make this point? It does come up to my attention that last year, last year in a major democratic year, the Wisconsin democratic party didn't even run two candidates in us house races. So maybe the Republicans are like, oh, they're not, they're so, they're too stupid. They're not going to run enough people in these races. So, you know, what are we to worry about? I don't know. It is just disturbing to watch a political party trounce over the will of the people as badly as they have done and act as if they are doing something good. I'm sorry there. If I, if I served food in Wisconsin and any of those Republicans came in, I guarantee it'd be coming with special sauce. You know what I mean? I guarantee you, if I worked in those things, I, I, they, you should, when, when the truth comes out about these guys, you should run them out of the state. You should, because they truly are horrible and they've been working against the people of Wisconsin for a long time. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. Well, they got out of the jam there. Uh, it was two, ban- two men on, no outs, and uh, they basically uh, they put Placard in, and he got out of that jam. Uh, we got two on, one out uh, for the Twins in the bottom of the fifth. Oh, half the game is gone, so they got to start getting some runs down 5-0 at this point. I want to give credit. You know, I am not the biggest fan of country music. I am not. I'm just, it's just, I'm not. I, I think most of it is wildly contrived like this, try that in a small town, you know. I love the comedians like, yeah, try to find a good slice of pizza in a small town. You know, that sort of thing. Um, I, you know, I, I have to admit, though, one of my favorite celebrities is Garth Brooks, because I think that he he reminds me of a little bit of Willie Nelson, of John uh, John Mellencamp, that he just he's he's there for Americans and he doesn't care about necessarily about politics. He, he does what he thinks is right. 
Um, I'll also, I, I've always kind of also been a fan of Trisha Yearwood. I think she's pretty good. And that was kind of interesting where I saw this story that came across. The Twin Cities has announced the 2024 host of the annual Habitat for Humanity housing event honoring the contributions of former President Jimmy Carter and his wife, Rosalind Carter, with country megastars Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood confirmed as hosts. They are going to be in state next year to, to basically help with Habitat for Humanity, which is truly one of the greatest organizations that has ever been created. Dear Lord, presidents only dream, dream of having a legacy like Carter has created with Habitat for Humanity. Uh, Twin Cities Habitat for Humanity managed Monday that St. Paul will host the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter Water Work Project in St. Paul next fall. The annual event celebrates the Carters, who are famous supporters and volunteers for the Affordable Housing Charity, having volunteered for projects in 14 countries between 1984 and 2019, renovating and repairing 4,390 homes during that time. 4,390 homes. 4,390 homes. And that's just the ones that they've done. Um... Brooks and Yearwood were confirmed in 2019 as the ambassadors who will be taking over for the Carters who are now in hospice care. They will join more than 2,000 volunteers in the Twin Cities next fall to build dozens of homes on the heights of the St. Paul's East Side. We are thrilled to join the Twin Cities Habitat for Humanity in hosting the Carters Work Project in St. Paul next year and continue to move progress through the heights, had said St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter. This opportunity celebrates the Carter's humanitarian legacy and shines a national spotlight on the groundbreaking efforts to create vibrant, sustainable, and affordable housing solutions for everyone. The Heights is described as an environmentally friendly redevelopment of a 112-acre former Hillcrest golf course on Larpenter at McKnight, which will eventually create a minimum of 1,000 affordable housing users as well as some light industrial space. Twin Cities Habitat for Humanity plans to build up to 150 homes in the site starting with the Carter Work Project properties next fall. The organizations of the Project of the Heights will be the biggest in the Twin Cities to date, and the homes it builds will have a focus on reaching those renting in the vibrant east side community with the intention of helping them get into the housing ladder. President and Mrs. Carter have helped open doors for thousands of Habitat homeowners while advancing racial equity. I saw a stat, and I don't know if this is necessarily true, but I saw a stat which said that the 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 the, the houses that are made don't get uh, the, 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 the the people that are in those houses on average on average stay something like eighteen years in these houses, so they don't get sold. I I, mean, I don't know if that that, that might have been a state stat or I'm, I'm not sure, but needless to say. The the amount of good the Carters have done, I mean, think about every president, even the Democratic ones. How many can you think of that have done something so prophetic as Habitat for Humanity? And it is truly amazing. I can't tell you how happy I am. And big kudos to Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood for coming in and doing this. I, I look forward to these guys coming on in and helping out. And... Yeah, I, and Melvin Carter, it, it's great. It's good to see this happen because the reality is is if we don't create affordable housing and get people that can't really afford a house into a house, well, we're going to have some problems in the future. That's for sure. 5-0 still? 5-0 still. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Have a good one. Till then, see ya.